0: Well, being in the book of Colossians, it's somewhat like drinking fresh crystal geyser water right from the stream every time you come to a passage. As I was studying this past week, I was very encouraged by once again seeing the realities of Christ's sufficiency. I want to begin with a story of this past year, and this past year has actually been very transformational for my family and I not only because we got to meet wonderful people and have a new community here at Gateway Bible Church, but also because we started a health journey that began last year. And uh, at the end of this health journey, one of the things that I began doing was consistently start going to the gym for the first time in my life. Now, going to the gym is not an easy task. You need to find time. You need a to know the main thing, which is you know, you need to know what you're doing. And so very excitedly, I found a membership near our home. I signed up, and I tried to work out for 30 minutes, specifically seek to work out for 30 minutes, and that is the key word here. One of the big things that, that I realized was that working out was not as simple as I thought it was. I called one of my friends who did bodybuilding competitions and was been working out for over a decade and I said, can you please write me up what it would look like for me to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, and so he wrote me out what I needed to do, how I needed to, to work out my lower body, how to work out my upper body. And uh, as he gave me the reps I needed to do and how many sets I needed to do of each and accompanied with YouTube videos, I thought I was well on my way and soon it would be a different dentist than my wife would see walking through those doors. Well, Lo and behold, I start working out and I look at these videos and I begin to realize that I can't really get the angle of what they're doing. How are they doing what they're doing? Is this the right thing? Do I need to tweak my body a little bit? Over a while, over some time, I realized it's all about form and less about how much weight I can really push. I quickly began to realize that I would come home sore certain days. Other other days, I came with back pain. And I realized it's not really the weights, but once again, it's all about the form. Because if you don't have the right form, you're not really isolating the muscle and working it out. And so all this excitement with the weight began to dwindle. And in the first three months, I stretched out my knee, which stopped me from doing squats. I pulled out something in my back. So it hurt when I was doing bench press and overall I was not having great success. And after a couple months in, I took a long break around Christmas time, which is a perfect time to take a break um, and get back to fun habits with family and friends around the dinner table. Now, these huge dreams that I had of working out really dwindled and went out of the picture. Now, this story is an illustration of how sometimes we have a great goal, but we don't always know how to achieve it. Or if we use the wrong methods, it actually stunts our growth. There are probably many examples in your own life where you were doing something for a period of your time only to then realize a few months later or even years later that I was actually doing it the wrong way. Now this could be related to parenting your first child. This could be related to exercise. This could be related to a diet that you started. This could be related to your new workplace. place. And not only is growth stunted, but there's also unnecessary pain that goes uh, with it by not using the right methods. And so as we look at our passage this morning that we just read, the Apostle Paul is seeking to guard us from a wrong way of sanctification. This is exactly what he is doing. He is teaching us to not pursue the wrong way of having spiritual fitness. And this is what we find here in verse 23. He says, There is a way that is not going to achieve Christlikeness and godliness. And in verse 23, at the end of our passage, we read, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here is the key phrase they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a way to do sanctification that seems on the outside that you are maturing and that you are growing, but it actually does nothing for you to grow spiritually. Paul is warning us this morning against any external and physical methods that seem to be spiritual, but in the end are a fraud. We know that in Christ's kingdom, everything works from the inside out. It's not the external that Christ is looking at so much as the internal in the heart is how we are truly transformed. That true religion and true piety comes from our union with Christ, comes from our strength with Christ, that then overflows into our actions. Now, we all know that Jesus met a group of people who were all about the externals. These people were heralding their prayers on the street corners. They were tithing from their mint garden. How many of us do that this morning? They were so pious and so religious, but Jesus said this about them. He said, "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Uncleanness. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Deception in spiritual growth. thinking that external factors are going to. Bring you closer to Christ. The Pharisees, their vehicle toward godliness was human tradition. So Paul is warning the believers at Colossae your spiritual growth is not going to come from you saying no to certain things, which is asceticism, or being religious in front of others, but it's going to come from your union with Christ. All these things look like they're going to help you grow spiritually. But in reality, as we read in verse 23, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And This is what Paul's been saying the whole time. And the reason why Paul brings this up is because when we move into chapters 3 and 4, what we will find is Paul giving us application of how to live out our wealth in Christ. He's going to tell us this is how you need to walk. And so he's been building this foundation that the way that you need to live your life is in union with Christ. Look at the very first word of our passage in verse 16. The word is, therefore. Therefore, let no one pass judgment. Paul's been continuing a thought that he started earlier. The previous therefore that we see is in verse 6. Look with me in verse 6. He says, therefore, as you have received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and grounded. Well, what is the therefore before the therefore of verse 6? If you go... To chapter 2, verse 1, Paul begins by saying this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I had for you for those that lay to see and all for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to do what? To reach, what is his ministry? What is he struggling for? To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In verse 3, here it is, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and Knowledge. So, Paul is saying it's in Christ. It is in Christ so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, what then is the solution that Paul is going to propose? What is the solution if it is not the flesh? Once again, it is our union with Christ. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says these words, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the father set your minds on things that are above not on the things that are of that are on earth the way that we are going to put to death what is earthly in us verse 5 put to death what is earthly in you is not by religious practices of do it is not by asceticism or mysticism of getting some kind of higher spiritual power it is by our union with Christ and specifically he says here the renewing of our mind set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth this is what Paul's been saying all along you're not lacking anything because you have Christ and you have all that you need So looking at the negative side where Paul has been saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. See that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul, how are we supposed to do that? Again, he begins in chapter 1 in verse 22. He reminds us that Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us to himself. In verse 27, we have the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ. In chapter 2, verse 3, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And then in verse 9, we have the central verse of the book of Colossians. If you will look there as I read, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have no lack. As J.D. preached a couple Sundays ago, Therefore, since you have been circumcised, verse 11, in your heart, Buried and raised with Christ, made alive, forgiven, and your debt is canceled. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Therefore, walk in your newness of life with Christ. Therefore, walk in your union with Christ. This is what all these phrases, verses from 12 to 16, are speaking about. When it says that we're circumcised of the heart, that means Christ has taken away the old man, He has given us a new heart. Buried and raised, made alive, forgiven, and canceled debt all speak about our union. So the question I want to answer this morning is how do you measure spiritual growth? You might be asking yourself, how do I know if I am growing spiritually? There's really only two ways to measure spiritual growth, by the deeds of the flesh or by the power of the spirit that produces fruit in our life. I really don't want us to be working out at the spiritual gym the wrong way, because not only will it stunt our growth, it's going to hurt in the process. And so remember, true spiritual growth is found in your union with Christ, not unity with works. Once again, true spiritual growth is found in your union with Christ, not your unity with works. And since spiritual growth is found in our union with Christ, Paul gives us two negative commands. He's kind of like, this is the railroad crossing. The lights are blinking. Two commands in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And then one also in verse 20, do not submit to regulations. And so let's begin with the first one. True spiritual growth is found in your union with Christ, not unity with works. Therefore, number one, let no one pass judgment on you. On you, As John was reading these verses, you probably were wondering what all this that Paul is writing was about. What is the asceticism? Worship of angels? These visions puffed up with knowledge? What is Paul talking about? We don't experience this on the daily. As you read the book of Colossians and you read commentators, you'll find that There's a mix of Jewish legalism found in the description of the heresy, Colossian heresy. There's also mysticism, which was Gentile things. There's also philosophy and some Christian teaching. And so, on the practical side, this was a very strange mix. But there's one thing that is true of all of these things that Paul writes. This long list is that they do not work to stop the indulgence of the flesh. They do not work for you to grow spiritually. As always, when we speak about judgment, there's a group of people who clearly see everybody's sin more than their own. Somehow they got the spiritual gift (laughs) of seeing the needs that other people have more than they see their own, which leads to judgment. Now, this Jewish legalism was a large part of the Colossian heresy Because human nature thrives in religious duties. Human nature thrives in religious duties. We love laws. We love ramifications. We love to assess ourselves based on a list of things that we can accomplish. The flesh is weak, Paul writes, when it comes to doing spiritual things, but strong when it comes to practicing rules and regulations. Many of you know that with your children, you give them the list to do, they will might do it quickly at times, but oh with what kind of attitude. You see, religion inflates the ego, makes the person content in their self righteousness. Religion thrives because it is much easier to track how people are doing externally than how they are doing internally. That's what the whole book of Colossians is about. Uh, The whole book of Galatians is about when Paul writes that you have died to the law, and now you need to walk in the Spirit. And people say, how are you going to track people when they're walking in the Spirit? How are you going to know how they're doing? It's much easier to track them with the law. You just give them parameters. You tell them to go to church on Sunday, read their Bible once a day, at least go to one small group, and if they're doing that, they must be okay. And that is what religion is built upon today. That is how every other religion outside of christianity functions as by dues but christianity functions on done it's completed it is finished and then the overflow of our love for christ is the fact that we love the body of christ and therefore we show up where the body of christ meets it's like an evening bedtime routine for the kids when the parameters are clearly tracked brush teeth check bath check pajamas check book check Bedtime song, check. Two-minute cuddle with each kid's check. And sometimes you check everything and they still don't go to sleep. We see clearly the parameters are in two ways that Paul is describing here in verses 16 and 17. Number one, eating and drinking, which is diet. Number two, festivals and new moons, which is days. So remember diet and days. Now we have not really changed too much from the first century. It's very interesting that so many years down the road... Certain churches' denominations lean towards separatism or legalism. They rate your spiritual health, once again, based on what you eat, on what you drink, and what you participate in. Does this sound familiar? Maybe this is a background that you grew up in. But abstaining from alcohol, not watching radar movies, or going to the theater, not hanging around Starbucks, or certain types of people made you more spiritual. Not that we are saying... That keeping away from those things is not a bad idea, but the question is, are we judging others based on what we perceive is more or less spiritual? Now, let's look first at diet, eating and drinking. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Jesus took eating and drinking and turned it it upside down on its head. When the Pharisees looked at the disciples who were not washing their hands before they were partaking in the meal, what did Jesus answer? He said, it's not what goes into the man that defiles the man, it's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. Because it's out of the heart that come sexual immorality, sin, murder, adultery, etc. What comes out of the mouth reveals the person's heart. Jesus made it clear that food itself is neutral. There's nothing inherently evil or good about one type of food or another. Now, the question whether one type of food or another is healthy or not is a different question. But is food inherently evil? Is drink inherently evil? It is not. We see the continuation of Jesus' teaching in the book of Acts. Peter is reminded this lesson on a housetop in Joppa. He has a blanket of unclean food come before him, and he's a Jew. Lord, I can't eat this food. We read in Acts 10, in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. He was rebuked by Paul in Antioch, in Galatians 2. In 1 Corinthians, we read, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And so there are people saying that if you eat certain types of food, if you live by the laws of the Old Testament and you abstain from certain foods, then you are more spiritual. You are growing in your spiritual walk. And Paul is saying, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to to food, Jewish religious leaders still wanted to live under the Old Testament. You know, it's very interesting that as we look at this, there's one of the big questions that we need to answer is is a question about the conscience: what is permitted or not permitted? Because as 21st century believers, we know that God created all things; all things are good. And everyone loves to say the phrase, well, everything is good, but in measure. The question is, how do we answer where something is good or not? Our conscience must be dictated by God's Word and not by the way that we were raised or things that we were taught from a younger age. Let me give you an example of how your conscience or you might be uncomfortable by one or another rule you might have grown up with. Imagine, now this is just an arbitrary illustration, imagine that you grew up in a home where your parents told you you cannot listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Only the day after Thanksgiving you can start listening to Christ- Christmas music because it drives us crazy. Now imagine you did that and you grew up for 10 years, 15 years in that home, and as an adult, you are sitting, now you have your own family, and your wife turns on Christmas music before Thanksgiving. And you feel uncomfortable inside of your heart. Because as you were raised, the right way would be to only listen to Christmas music after Thanksgiving. Your conscience has been dictated and has been set up not by the, word, by the truth of God's word, but by a human tradition. And so when we're talking about food and drink, we must ask ourselves the question, if we are being dictated by human tradition or the Word of God. I think a good principle that helps us to navigate this is a quote by Paul Tripp, a very important quote, because in the Spirit we are given freedom, Galatians 5, but don't, let, don't use that freedom for indulgence of the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, here's a principle. Paul Tripp says this, any good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Any good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Any drink becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Any object of our appreciation becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. A home, a car, even a relationship can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. How many of us were idolizing our spouse when we got married? Thought they were the end-all and be-all, our functional savior. Finally, I'm out of my loneliness and all the problems of my life. And then you realize that's just the two of you in the same spot in this big construction project. And they are not your functional Savior. So, the first thing is diet. Second thing is days. Let no one judge you based on the days. Not only were you more spiritual if you ate the right things, but also if you participated in the right days. Let's start with the Sabbath. Specifically, Paul says here, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those are all regarding days. The Old Testament Jews were commanded to keep the weekly Sabbath, which was the seventh day of the week. Now, it is wrong to call Sunday the Christian Sabbath because it's not really designated that in the New Testament. It is called the Lord's Day. It is the first day of the week. It is the day that Christ was raised from the dead, and so it commemorates the victorious resurrection of Jesus. So we come together as believers and we celebrate that. But if there is one thing that holds true about the Sabbath, it teaches us To rest. If we do not have a day of rest, we're not able to rejuvenate. We cannot be as effective and fruitful in our ministry, in our families, and in our workplaces. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you know, but we actually practice Shabbat in our home. Sabbath. We don't practice it the Jewish way. But the idea is we practice the principle of rest. And we just did it Friday night to Saturday night. Which is we... Come home, and we have a special meal on Friday night. For a while, it was lasagna. The kids loved it. And then after that, we enjoy some time of fellowship around the table, asking, how was the week? What was your favorite part of the week? What did you enjoy? And we think about the things that God has done this week, because part of the Sabbath is two things. Ceasing, God ceased from work, and then he celebrated the work that he had done. So we cease and we celebrate, and I turn off my phone, so if I I ever text you on Saturday, it's still my Sabbath. Sabbath. I turn off my phone and try not to have any interactions. The point of the Sabbath is for you to actually rest. Now, these religious leaders were taking this idea of Sabbath and making it a rule and saying, we will judge your spirituality if you do a Sabbath or if you don't actually fulfill the Sabbath. If you're going to heal a man on the Sabbath, you're going to carry your bed on the Sabbath, you're not spiritual. Now, this is a principle that the Lord left but they were judging people by that. A new moon or a festival, Jews also had their feast days, their special new moon celebration. Their religion was tied to the calendar. And so again, the idea here is if you perform certain diets and if you count certain days, you are more spiritual. And Paul is saying, let no one pass judgment on you in those things. Because the, re- the reality is this, both diet and days is legalism. And legalism is bondage. There's a whole book in the New Testament that was written for us not to be or to abstain from legalism, which is the book of Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Peter also called it a yoke upon the neck in Acts 15. It is a burden. Now, Paul gets to the explanation, which he is going to do in each of our sections this morning, where he compares uh, what the... False teaching is with Christ, and he parallels it with Christ. Paul gets the explanation why we do not need to worry about these things. Look at verse 17. Paul says this These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's the reason all these things were just a shadow, a shadow that didn't really just had maybe the outline. Didn't really have the substance, but it was pointing, the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. Christ was going to be our ultimate Sabbath in salvation, our ultimate place of rest. Christ was going to be the one who was going to take food and drink, and on the final feast we would be celebrating with him. Hebrews 10 says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come. Why go back to the shadows when we have the reality in Jesus Christ in the new covenant? The Old Testament days and diets were simply a Christ-shaped shadow that pointed forward to the substance. Right? These, these days and diets were an outward showing of spirituality. But what was the biggest problem of religion and legalism is that it does not change the heart. There's no circumcision of the heart that is happening. A few verses earlier, Paul specifically talked about this. You were circumcised with a circumcision, not a flesh. The circumcision of the heart. Therefore, now your outwardly showing of, this, of your spirituality is the fruit of the spirit. It is our union with Christ, that is the substance. Now I believe this first point reminds us that first first thing is it reminds us of our union with Christ, which causes us not to seek others. What is legalism? What is legalism's ultimate focus? It's people. The Pharisees, when they were practicing all the things they were doing, they were doing so to show off to the people that were watching them. Our union with Christ causes us not to seek to please others, but our union with Christ gives us freedom not to be judged by others based on a human standard. And second, I think an inference from this couple of verses is that as we are living our Christian walk, friends, We must not judge others based on the standards of Christianity that we have instituted. What is truly spiritual based on our upbringing or the way that we view the Scriptures? True spiritual growth is found in your union with Christ, not unity with works. Therefore, first, let no one pass judgment. And secondly, in verse 18, we find this, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. Now, what does Paul mean by this? To disqualify was to declare unworthy of a prize. It would be that you would break the rules and you could not participate in the race because you had broken the rules. It's not that a person ceases to be a basketball player. It's that they cannot compete in the finals. Maybe like the example of Draymond Green and his unsportsmanlike conduct. In 2016, in Game 4, which got him to be disqualified from Game 5 and ultimately lost the 2016 Finals. Paul is saying here that there are people who want to disqualify you, and listen to this specifically, of your reward. They don't want to disqualify you from your citizenship that is in heaven, but from your reward. A believer does not lose his status with Christ, but he may lose The approval of the Lord. There is then the danger that our lives today will rob us of reward and glory tomorrow. There are things that we can do that can hurt us at the spiritual gym. And specifically, how can you be disqualified? Verses 18 to 19 can be summarized in one word. And the word is mysticism. Dennis, what is mysticism? I'm glad you asked as these fans are blowing at least some kind of decent air on you so you do not fall asleep. Mysticism is this. The belief that a person can have an immediate experience experience with the spiritual world completely apart from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit. An experience apart from God's Word and the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul in verse 19 says that these experiences are not holding fast from the head. They're not holding to Christ in verse 19. So they're apart from Christ. He continues, Apart from Christ, from whom the whole body nourishing it together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So there are experiences that deceive people that they're growing, but in reality they're not growing. True growth comes from your union with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So what is the experience they wanted to get? Paul describes it in three characteristics. And the first one is this idea of asceticism and the worship of angels. There's people who are insisting, let no one disqualify you. How are they going to disqualify you? Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. The idea of asceticism is to neglect yourself of certain things in your life. Neglect from your life food, neglect comfort. So that these physical elements do not get in the way of your spiritual connection. Somehow they're going to be that 5G that's interfering. And this is the practice of monks. They would neglect the spiritual material because matter is evil so that you can access physical material because it is evil so that you can access the spiritual. That was the first thing. They're going for an experience. I'm going to neglect the body. This is not modern day biblical fasting. This is seeking an experience outside of God's word in the spirit. And also the worship of angels. It was this idea that if I could not reach God, who is deity, at least I could reach whoever is the next level. And the next level below God is the angels. So let me just reach to, to the spiritual level of the angels. Let me just worship angels since I can't go directly to God. Now, the idea in both of these is that you need some kind of spiritual experience to be closer to God. And this now became the evidence of your superiority above other Christians was the experience that you had. How many people have you encountered in your life that have told you this to your face? I have heard something. I have experienced something that you have not. God told me something extremely secretive that only I know. And you do not. And so the, the Colossian heresy are these people who are doing this. The second characteristic of mysticism is this going into details, going into visions that we see here going on in detail about visions. Now going on is this idea of going into. So these people were able to set foot in the inner shrine to be fully initiated into the mysteries of the religion. So they're able to see the inner visions, the place where no one else could really tread, only they could tread, It was only reserved for the elite. And this really goes against the heart of the gospel. The gospel is that you are justified because of the work of another. Now you have access to the Father through Christ. And as we read, we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And in chapter 4 Hebrews, it says we come boldly to the throne of grace. And so there's this lie, this heresy, this belief that there's only those people that got to enter into these visions that nobody else saw. So let no one disqualify you, telling you you should do asceticism, you should worship angels, you should have these kind of visions. And then third characteristic, they're inflating their sensuous minds. Now this is the idea that because you have the knowledge that nobody else has, you have the experience nobody else has, then you are the one with this spark of deity within you. And now you have the knowledge and everyone should come to you and bow down to you and say, Lord Dennis, what have you to say to me because you have entered into the holiest of holies. This is what people were doing at the time of the church of Colossae as Paul is writing to them. They were the ones who were puffed up without cause. This is what produced the false pride. I am the authority. They would measure everything by their own experiences and then try to teach other people to live by the knowledge only that they had. I have the secret sauce and everyone must listen to me. So instead of holding on to Christ, they were looking for an experience. We read the book of Colossians and we're asking ourselves the question, God, how is this relevant to us? Do we see how it's relevant to us today? Do you see that there are religions and billions of people who are living this way, that Buddhism teaches this that certain groups of, or veins of Christianity teach this to get higher experiences, that there are religions that teach the second blessing that you experience that you're never going to have to sin any longer. Nothing really has changed in 2,000 years because it is easier to track how you are doing based on religion or based on a certain experience that only you yourself saw. And that's how you know you're truly growing and spiritual. So, instead of holding fast to Christ, who gives true spiritual growth, who is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, who in whom we're rooted and built up and established, they go to these empty experiences when they have the substance who is Christ. And this goes to the heart of sufficiency. The question becomes, do we fully believe that in Christ, we have all the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God for parenting? For relationships, for church, or do we believe we need an experience or some kind of enlightenment for us to truly grow? Look what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying Christ is the head. They're not holding fast to the head, but you believers, you should hold fast to the head who is Christ. He is the one who holds the whole body together, the body that is nourishing it together and grows. And look at this key word. It grows with a growth that comes from God himself. The growth doesn't come apart from Christ. The one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body. The church, Christ, gives spiritual growth. The false teachers were not holding to the head, and therefore they were spiritually undernourished. And now they were insisting others that they needed to experience likewise. They thought they were spiritual giants, But actually, they were much smaller. William Hendrickson, he writes this. And I want to encourage you with this quote. He says, "In Christ, you have reached the source which flows the stream of blessing that supplies whatever you need for this life and for the next." I'm going to read it again: "In Christ you have reached the source which flows the stream of blessings that supplies whatever you need for this life and for the next. Abide, therefore in him, and you will continue to experience that out of His fullness. We all receive grace upon grace. To the very utmost limits of human capacity, the church that remains in vital union with Christ receives love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Yes, and every Christian grace, Christ is the fountain that never fails. End quote. Friends, this is the one whom we have. This is the one who continually sustains us. Now, the reason why... Making such an emphasis this morning on your spiritual growth is because our passage, verses 16 to 23, is really the door into the rest of the book of Colossians. Everything else hinges on these verses. We cannot move on into chapter 3, verse 5 of put to death what is earthly in you. We cannot move further on how to overcome the flesh, how to bear with one another and forgive we cannot move further in wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives. We can't move on to working hard and doing everything as through the Lord or walking in wisdom toward outsiders if we do not understand that it is not religion and it is not mysticism that's going to get us there, but it is the sufficiency and the fullness of Christ that we have been filled in Him and it is power within us. It is a growth that comes from God. So do we see this warning in these first two sections? In verse 16, the warning is this, let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, let no one seek to disqualify you. Really, in short, what Paul is saying is, let no one add a burden on you, number one, which is religion, and no, let no one derail you, moving you away from God and his word to experiences in your life. Because at the end of the day, when we are not filled with the fullness of Christ, there's a tendency for us, if we're doing things in the flesh, which is Galatians 5, is in Galatians 6, verse 9, do not grow weary in doing good. The question becomes, why do we grow weary in doing good? Why does life become hard? Why does parenting become hard? Why does marriage become hard? Why does evangelism become hard? Why does church growth become hard? It is because we lean too much on religion and the flesh And too little on the power of Christ and his spirit in our life. And so we throw in the towel of spiritual growth. We don't really ask ourselves why we're spiritually hurting. We're not wondering why we're stuck and not moving forward. We have to heed these warnings. Because you might have found yourself a little bit like you're running on empty. Like you're spinning your tires and life doesn't seem to be moving forward. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is the fuel for our life? Now, these are serious questions. Paul thought it was serious. He says, you could actually be unworthy of the prize if you are not living a life that is honoring to God. Living a life of religion and asceticism. But I want to encourage you that you are united in Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, as we've been thinking about this idea, true spiritual growth is found in your union with Christ, not unity with works. Therefore, number one, let no one pass judgment. Secondly, let no one disqualify you or seek to disqualify you. And third, do not submit. And this is where we're going to land the plane this morning. Do not submit. Do not submit to these things. Now, Paul has been hammering this idea throughout the whole section, beginning at chapter 2. Right from the very beginning Christ is the riches. Let no one try to de- deviate you from him. Christ has rooted you and he has established you. Don't go to philosophy and empty deceits. You have been filled with Christ. Therefore, do not go to asceticism and religion. And at the very end, in verse 20, Paul gives us the reason right, that he's been talking about the whole section. He asked this one simple question. And sometimes in our Christian life, questions are very, very important and very helpful. And Paul knows that. Paul could speak about theology and write a whole book like Romans. But Paul loves to ask questions that keep us engaged. And so Paul asked the believers of Colossae a very simple question. If you have died with Christ to religion, to the diet of To diets and days, if you have died with Christ to mysticism and the worship of angels, why are you still submitting to them? (laughs) Why are you still living in them as if you haven't died to them? Why do they still have a hold on your life? Why are you dead but acting as if you're alive to these things, believers at Colossae? If you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why As if you were still alive in them, in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, right? Those are the the religious uh, Jewish traditions according to human precepts and teachings. Paul uses a very strong word, very strong language, the language of death, to remind believers that this is not the way that they ought to live. Death means that no longer do these traditions have a hold on them. Death means that no longer do I live the way that I used to live. No longer do I seek to please God with the works that I do, but I glorify God because of my changed life by the works that I do. Paul uses this language constantly to remind believers that they are also dead to sin. They're dead to religion and mysticism. And so Paul nails, puts a nail in the coffin and uses this terminology of the union with Christ if with Christ there it is he's been saying it all along if with Christ it's with Christ it's with Christ it's because you're in Christ for Christ through Christ the book of ephesians which we're not in but we're in colossians but ephesians uses the idea of in Christ or with Christ over 150 times we were just last week studying ephesians and Todd Bolton asked the question as as uh, also did Um, one other preacher, and he said, do you truly believe that the Father loves you as much as he loves the Son? And everyone in the congregation said, yes, we believe. And he said, no, you don't. (laughs) Because if you really did believe that the Father loves you as much as as, uh, he loves the Son, your life would be radically changed. Well, another Christian reality or theology that is not often spoken of is our union with Christ. We would all say, do you believe in your union with Christ, that you're united to him? We all say yes and amen. The question becomes, what does our life look like? Look, union with Christ is the umbrella which undergirds every other theology that we study. It undergirds forgiveness and justification and adoption. Everything is because of our union with Christ that we experience everything else. Union is the overarching theology and theme. And Paul is telling the believers, do you really believe you're united to Christ? Why do you keep going back to the old ways? Why do you let people sway you into traditions? Why do you try to seek something outside of Christ? Do you really believe your union with Christ is enough? Just as Paul did in Romans, he is reminding them that they have been divorced from their old way of life and married to Christ. I want you to open to Romans chapter 6. As you open to Romans 6, I'll read also Romans 7. I want us to highlight, because Romans 6 is a very important passage about our union with Christ. But in in Romans 7, Paul uses this imagery. He says, The law is binding on a person, in verse 1, Only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, so she's dead, released from the law of marriage. Okay, it's broken. Now, in Romans 6, we see these realities in our life as believers. Now, very interestingly, Romans 5 is about justification in Christ. That we're justified, we are made right with God. In Romans 6, most people say it's sanctification, it's how we are growing. But the reality is that Romans 6 is actually about our union with Christ, or what else is called in theology, our positional sanctification. Our positional sanctification. Most of the time, when we say grow in Christ, or that you are united to Christ, or you're set apart for God, and we are growing in Christ likeness, we're often thinking of progressive. And progressive sanctification is used in the New Testament. But did you know that every time you read the word sanctify in the New Testament, literally 10% or less is used of you progressively growing like that chart, up and down, up and down. And that 90% actually speaks about your positional sanctification. The fact that you are set apart from this world set to the Lord, that you are dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ. And if we really believe that, this is why Paul said in Colossians 3.1 that you, gotta, you have to think on the things that are above. You've got to transform your mind and truly believe you're dead to these things. So Paul is saying that it doesn't matter what you do in your life. Well, the religious elites, they pump their fists and they ask this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, religious people, you missed the point. You can put up all the fences that you want around people. You can tally them up how they're doing spiritually, but their hearts are not changed, they're not transformed. But when people are truly dead to sin, then they are changed. So Paul is saying, by no means. You you missed the point. How can we who die to sin still live in it? You're dead to sin. Sin has no more dominion over you. How are you going to still live in it? And then he brings in our union with Christ in verses 3 and 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, now what does it mean that you're baptized into Christ? You were immersed into Christ. Baptism is the English that word that we get from the Greek word baptizo. It was just a transliteration in the, in the 17th century, early 1600s. Into English, bat, to baptize literally means to immerse. So if you're ever going to look in the 1st and 2nd centuries. At pictures of of baptisms, there's going to be always a big hole in the ground and people are going to get dunked into the water. (laughs) Because that's what baptism means. You get immersed. And so Paul is saying, if you have been immersed into Christ, if you have become one with Christ, as Christ died, so you have died. And because now you're raised to newness of life, he has been raised, you are raised to newness of life. How in the world are you going to continue to live in sin? How are you going to continue to submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You are a new creation. You are united to Christ. Sin no longer has power over you. Look at verse 5. For if you've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This idea of brought to nothing is like the body of sin, our old self, is like a pair of old tennis shoes. They're not good for anything. You just toss them out. And look at verse 11. More than that, we also read verse, uh, verse 11. So you also must consider, you reckon, you believe your debt to sin and the life to God in Christ. So this is a, the idea of union. And interestingly, Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Begins verses six to fifteen, speaking about our justification, the circumcision of the heart. He then writes about we we um, we have uh, been made alive together with him. We've been canceled our debt and we've been forgiven of our sins. It's justification. Well, guess what? In verse sixteen and onward, he says, "Now this is now your positional sanctification. You've been set apart because you're in Christ, and because you're in Christ." Don't live the old way. I love this one quote that says, you're not the person you used to be, so don't handle life the way that you used to handle it. And is that an amazing reality, friends of us, of our life? We're not the people we used to be, so we don't need to handle life like we used to handle it. So before Paul is going to move on into teaching us of how to walk in Christ, he reminds us of our wealth in Christ. He reminds us that the way that you are going to Put to death what is earthly in you. The way that you're going to stop the indulgence of the flesh, the way that you're going to get over your anger, the way that you're going to get over your short-temperedness, the way that you're going to have more patience with the people around you, that you're not going to be so quickly inflamed by relationships that God has put in your life. The the, the indulgences of the flesh, right? The way that you're going to be able to overcome lust, sexual lust the way that you're going to be overcome, greed, money, issues, the love of money, is not because you're just going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. The way that you're going to change is because you're going to remember that you're united to Christ. And that union with Christ and that new life in Christ is going to give you the power and the energy to help you to make the right choices because of his spirit that works within you. And so one of the biggest hindrances to spiritual growth is the flesh. And the question is, how are we going to overcome it? Once again, true spiritual growth doesn't come from unity with religion, but union with Christ. It doesn't come from the things that we do or do not do, the days we observe or do not observe, the food we eat or do not eat, that which we drink or do not drink, the experiences we have or we do not have. True spiritual growth comes from union with Christ. And so my question to you this morning is, do you remember that and are you walking in that reality? Now I want to ask you a few questions to see how well you and I are walking in our union with Christ instead of religion. And here's the first one very simple test. Do I care more about what people think or what God thinks? Do I care more about coming to church on Sunday or getting in my daily bread? How many of you say, I can't miss a Sunday service, but you'll go on five days not reading the Bible? Do I care more about eagerly going to a conference to have some kind of experience? Or am I excitedly waking up each morning to commune with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings? Am I fully supplied and have no lack, or do I find myself lacking spiritual nourishment? If you're lacking spiritual nourishment is because you need to again be united, uh, remember your union with Christ, and live out of that. There are two things that religion and mysticism do, and this is what Paul is warning us against. Number one, both religion and mysticism, what they do, they both make you think that you're doing better than you are. Religion is the perfect, <laughs> the perfect uh, vehicle for this. How many people who do not believe in the justification, the reformation, and just Christ dying on their behalf, walk around thinking that they're going to heaven based on the acts that they do. And many of you have come from those kind of backgrounds, from the backgrounds where people believe that they, do, they are doing better than they are because they have set for themselves a way to measure their spiritual growth based on what somebody has told them to do. Mysticism, in the same way, makes you say that you're reaching the new spiritual heights And so, you think that you are doing better because you're getting these experiences. So, number one, they both make you think that you're doing better than you are, which is why they are extremely dangerous, which is why one of the most scariest verses in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, when Christ tells people who said, Lord, Lord, in your name, didn't we cast out demons didn't do these miracles? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Second thing is they both hurt your spiritual walk. Both of these things hurt your spiritual walk. Religion adds a burden. The gospel takes away burdens. Religion adds burdens, which leads you to getting hurt in your spiritual walk. And mysticism, it doesn't add, but it actually robs you of true riches in Christ. It makes you anemic. It makes you feel that you are actually somewhere when you're actually not. And only when the storms of life come do you realize that you are malnourished. Church, I do not want any of us to to lack the nourishment and the strength and the power that Christ provides. I don't want any of us to ultimately get tired or grow weary or get spiritually hurt because we're doing sanctification the wrong way. And the tone of this sermon obviously is one of more Warning, because Paul is warning the church. And I want to warn all of you this morning. Because it was a real check even in my own heart as I was preparing for this message, asking myself the exact same questions. Where am I at? Because it is so easy to fall into religion. It is so easy to fall into mysticism. To think that you're doing better than you really are. But I do want to remind you of the key verse of the book of Colossians, which is this. In verse 9 of chapter 2, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God, the Godhead, dwells in bodily form in Christ. And here is the most profound thought, probably in the New Testament, and you have been filled in him or with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. (laughs) You have been united to Christ. And so, walk in this newness of life and live a life where you are focusing more on your union with Christ, not on your unity with works. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words of life. And we simply ask, Lord, would you guide us? Guide us and shepherd us in a way where we are at the green pastures and the streams of living waters, where we have enough. And we thank you that you have already done that. But as you're guiding us, Lord, also guard us. Guard us from the ideas of the surrounding world. Guard us from things and realities that are not biblical. Guard us, Lord, so that we would not get hurt in our walks, that we would not grow weary, that we would not run on empty, that we would be strengthened by the strength that you provide. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for this warning. How many warnings do you have for your people in the New Testament? How good it is to be warned to check our own hearts, to see if we're in the faith, to see how we're walking. We thank you for these words of life. In Jesus' name, amen.